0: we're recording inside the cohab podcast studio space under the texas street bridge by the red river in downtown shreveport louisiana and this is the 3180 podcast what is going on in the 318 what is our current identity shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be it's time for shreveport to make a 180 every thursday we are having conversations about doing just that we're talking to people who are making the difference in our city i'm josh clayton i'm thomas young Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. So when you hit the large green button, that means it's recording? Yeah, we're in this red we're recording. I, I told Thomas that I would like to learn how to do the sound, so he bought a soundboard that was uh, as easy to use as for like a fourth grader. And he sent me <laughs> a text, with, he sent me a picture of that, and he said, which button would you hit if we wanted to record? I said, probably the large green one. He said, good, you can do this. <laughs> Yep, we're all on board now. All right, today on the podcast, we have Megan Davenport. Megan Davenport is the current chair of Slow Foods North Louisiana. Once upon a time, Megan Davenport's parents searched for her. Eventually, she was found in her office, which was the pantry, reading cookbooks. She earned her MBA at Louisiana Tech. She works in graduate medical education and LSU Health. Not anymore. She's at LSUS. And what does she do at LSUS?
1: Still graduate education.
0: Graduate education. Megan is the founding organizer of Shreve Swap, which encourages people to get rid of things they don't use. The swap has donated goods to many nonprofits in our area. She enjoys teaching, cooking at community gardens, and promoting social justice through food that is good, clean, and fair for all through her efforts as chair of Slow Foods North Louisiana. She was honored by YPI in the 2016 class of 40 Under 40, which is where we met. She was awarded the Scholarship to Slow Food Nation in 2018 and chosen as one of the 400 delegates worldwide in 2017. She's a voting member of the Society of the Golden Fork, and she was named a Louisiana Food Fellow in 2017. Today... My friend Megan is going to interview Chef Anthony Fallon, who's a graduate of Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts in San Francisco, where he began his journey in the culinary world. His experience cooking in some of the Bay Area's best restaurants, as well as his childhood memories of working in his grandfather's garden, instilled in him a deep respect for farm-fresh ingredients. His love for Louisiana and his family brought him back home in 2010, where he joined the team of Wine Country Bistro and quickly moved up to Executive Chef. After years with Wine Country, Anthony's drive for something of his own and his passion for farm-to-table led to his first business endeavor, Fat Calf Boucherie, a stationary food trailer at Red River Brewing Company, serving gastropub-style fare, utilizing locally raised meats. His popular food trailer concept evolved quickly from a 10-item menu parked outside the building to a move of the 40-foot trailer inside the brewery and an expansion to a full menu of shareable and small plates, burgers, and sandwiches. That stepping stone has enabled Anthony to finally fulfill his dream to have his own brick-and-mortar. In August of 2019, Fat Calf Boucherie closed its stores at Red River and relocated to 3030 Crestwell Avenue in the Highland community of Shreveport. The new and evolved concept, Fat Calf Brasserie, fulfills his dream of having a small neighborhood rotisserie-based restaurant. At Fat Calf Brasserie, you can expect some of the same farm-fresh and slow-food concepts that Chef Anthony Falon has been long known for in northwest Louisiana. In addition to their restaurant, Anthony and his wife Amanda have a side project, Second Act Supper Club, where they host underground dinners in various historic locations around downtown Shreveport. The Supper Club has developed quite a following, typically selling out the 70 to 80 available seats within 24 hours. These dinners are fantastic, and they are where Anthony really gets to let his creative juices flow, often pushing diners to try things out of their comfort zone, like bison tongue. (laughs) So, welcome Megan Davenport. Thank you. And welcome Anthony Fallon to the 380 podcast. It's good to be here. Great to have you both. Um, Megan, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I'm a busy person. I am very judgy. I am a food judge, I am a beer judge, a barbecue judge, a boudin judge, recently a chicken wing judge, a chili judge. And after we have podcast recording today, this evening we'll be having the Shreve Swap and we will be doing a soup swap where you cook once and you eat multiple times. So people will be bringing frozen soups and then trading. So I made a pumpkin soup. I roasted pumpkins that were left over from slow food fed on the farm and made some soup that is vegan and gluten-free to accommodate a bunch of people that... I don't actually eat vegan and gluten-free all the time, but I do like it sometimes. And uh, we're gonna have a party and trade fair.
0: And that's tonight?
1: That's tonight.
0: So that's what you do?
1: That's what I do.
0: Are you gonna judge the other soups? Uh, Not officially. Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, Anthony, um, tell us about yourself.
1: Well,
2: you know, I'm a chef. uh, Now I currently own my own restaurant. Um, On top of that, I have a busy home life. I'm a husband. And a father of a wonderful six-year-old son with another baby daughter on the way, so life is about to get even more um, interesting.
0: Yeah, you picked a fine time to uh, <laughs> to make a number two.
2: Yeah, no, two weeks before we opened the restaurant.
0: That's uh, uh,
2: smart. Yeah, we didn't plan that one accordingly, but it is it is. And um, you know, on top of that, we juggle you know the business and the restaurant and
0: managing our employees and everything else we do on our day-to-day life. Well, both of you have heard the podcast before, and um, I've invited Megan on to conduct a, an interview of one of my favorite chefs in town who owns one of my favorite restaurants in town, and before you owned one of my favorite restaurants in town, you had my favorite food truck in town, <laughs> and uh, Kelly and I invited you to do our wedding, so we're big fans of yours, and um, I, I especially love what you're doing over on Cresswell. Thank you. And a uh, long friend of Megan's as well, and, and I've I appreciate what she brings to the table in the food community, Shreveport. So you guys have a conversation that I look forward to listening to on Saturday morning. All right.
1: Thank you. So just to be clear to everyone, Josh didn't tell me who to interview. Oh. He said, you pick someone. So ta-da, you have been chosen. Well, thank you. (laughs) I wondered. Why do you like cooking?
2: You know I ask myself that every single day um, I wake up I think um, the main reason I enjoy cooking is you know bringing something to somebody's life you know whether it's a birthday anniversary a special moment it's the joy they get when they eat eat your food um, most of the time it's joy sometimes you get critiqued um, but I, I enjoy it it's a drill and rush. It's the it's the camaraderie you have in the kitchen it's getting to talk to people and meet people. And it's a good way to get your foot in the door, good conversation starter. And um, when I started out cooking, I never foresaw what it would turn into 16 years later um, when I first started out cooking. So where we're at now, I'm, I'm, some days I look back and I'm very blessed and very happy to be here and still shake my head and say, wow, all this started you know, so long ago as a young cook in San Francisco and here I am today in my hometown with a restaurant. Um, it's pretty exciting.
1: So as someone else who likes to cook, what compelled you to actually become a chef?
2: Mm. You know, I don't think I really became a chef. It took time. Um, I started out going to culinary school to be, a, you know, <clears throat> back then I, I kind of hung out with some of the wrong crowd, I guess you could say. Um, I lived in a different state at the time and I always enjoyed cooking at home for my friends and my family, and it was, I needed to get away from my environment. Um, So I took the Greyhound, or the Amtrak, and headed to San Francisco. I had a cousin that I grew up with here in Shreveport, and he had already moved out there to go to Art Institute, and he said, hey, why don't you come out here and uh, go to culinary school? You like cooking? There's a culinary school right down the the way. You know, they'll probably get you in, get you financial aid and all that good stuff. And so starting out, <clears throat> I never went into it going I wanted to be a chef. It was like, hey, it's my ticket to San Francisco. I can go to culinary school. I'll figure it out along the way. <clears throat> and then back then I was 20, 22 years old. And uh, I liked it. You know, the, the school, I'd go to school from 7 to noon. And I'd go, I'd take the subway to whatever restaurant I was working at at the time. And I'd work from 1 an afternoon till 1 in the morning get up and do it all over again. So at 21 years old it kind of kept me away from the nightlife the bad, you know getting involved with the wrong people. I was very tunnel vision. Uh, I worked hard, I cooked, I, I pushed myself and I pushed myself never with the intentions to become a chef. I just enjoyed cooking and over the years it's kind of evolved into a passion that I really truly enjoy. So why not turn it into a career?
1: What do you wish you had <clears throat> known when you started out?
2: <laughs> oh, the, you know, how the ups and downs of the restaurant business, I think, you know, you go into cooking and you still see it now is you think it's going to be Food Network. You think it's going to be bells and whistles and a lot of glamour. You know, even in culinary school, they tell you, oh, you can be on the Food Network. You're going to do this and you'll have your own cooking show. It's not until you get in the trenches and you realize, oh shit, this is not what they told me it was going to be like in school. It's even when you go to culinary school, you come out. When you're in the big cities, no one cares that you went to culinary school. They're just you're one of the hundreds of thousands of kids going through culinary school. So you start as a dishwasher. You start at picking herbs and doing all the stuff that the other seasoned cooks don't want to do and don't have time to do. So you got to start somewhere. So when you come out of culinary school, you're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. I'm going to be a chef at some restaurant. And you, you learn real quick that you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you've got to earn your stripes. And it's a long, a long road. I mean, it's a, you got to put a lot of dedication. you got to be resilient. And you got to, every day, try even harder than the day before. And then over time, it progresses and gets better. Um, but starting out, I thought it was going to be this quick jump We were going to, you know, I was going to be on TV and it was going to be I was going to run this high end restaurant in San Francisco. And that lasted a total of probably two days in a real kitchen. And I learned to keep my head down and just work hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that you actually mention at school there was a notion that, hey, you could be on Food Network. But I saw this morning an Instagram ad for Food Network that was basically a series of. This is the host-chef personality who's on. And most of those people have been on that network for maybe 20 years. Yeah. And that's just shocking to me, especially because food goes through fashion phases, so
2: to speak. Trends and different things and dietary needs.
1: People think fashion is about trends. Food is very about trends. And there are a lot of chefs who don't actually have a restaurant and we know some of them here um, what advice would you have for other chefs who want to start a restaurant
2: take your time um, even you know I've been doing this for a long time and even you know you can prepare yourself as much as possible but is it is different being that chef in a restaurant Where you are not responsible for the success of that restaurant you're responsible for you know what you can control food costs labor costs Creating the menu, um, mentoring your staff, but once you own your own restaurant, everything you do in your day-to-day as the restaurant chef, you still have to do as a restaurateur, as a business owner. So on top of running the kitchen, cooking with next to your crew, mentoring them, you got to do the books, you got to do accounting, you got to make sure taxes are paid, rent's paid, utilities are paid. You know the whole list. Your your hat now is turned into multiple hats, and it's not just about the cooking anymore. And I laugh at that because I was that same way. I, you know, a lot of people have told me that same thing. No matter how good you cook, it doesn't matter until you can manage the whole, the whole, um, the whole business. And never, never understood that. I, I cook really good. I'm here every day. You know, I train my guys. Until you open your own business, I don't think you ever really understand. Um, knowledge is power.
1: How did you hear about Slow Food North Louisiana, and why did you join? Why does it matter to you?
2: You know, <clears throat> I had to say I'm probably guilty because I am part of that. But <laughs> it's hard for me to to participate in some of the events just because of the you know running and always constantly busy. But I heard first heard about Slow Food um, when I joined Wine Country. Uh, Jason Brady was a very big proponent of it and very big. And that's kind of something that pushed me, kind of guided me, pulled me towards wine country when I first moved back from San Francisco, as I had lived out there for so long. And I came here and I was trying to find that restaurant that I could get into. And they were part of the slow foods. I mean, I heard about it. I was very intrigued by it. And then once I started participating and learning to work with the Valencia Gardens and all the different little community gardens, Angie White, you with all the different pop up things that everybody was doing, it it was about the community and about bringing awareness to what you were eating. And at the end of the day, becoming a chef or a cook that's something that drives you. If you like to get your hands dirty and work with raw product, this is a good way to a good organization to be a part of to help bring awareness to it. Um, I wish I had a little more time on my hands so I could be a little more dedicated on a regular basis. But you know, we we do believe in it. We do talk about it, and it's something that is needed in our community.
1: So you have good, clean, fair food at Fat Calf Brasserie, and how would you explain Fat Calf Brasserie to somebody who has not yet dined there?
2: I think it's <clears throat> what I like to say. We're not pretentious as you are who you are um, doesn't matter where you're from or what walk of life or what, which who you are your the doors are open and we say as long as you're nice to us we'll be nice to you um, and it's a, a place where you can go and pull up a chair and might run into somebody you know um, you can have a good glass of wine a good beer um, and you know most nights on a busy night it turns into a party And I say that because so many people know each other. Now they're moving and they're bouncing around the table to table. And it's such a small place that people, we don't tell them to sit down. We want them to get up and and interact with each other. So if you're looking for an exciting place, a loud place um, with a lot of energy, a lot of familiar faces um, with good, good from scratch food, um, Fat Calf would be a place for you.
1: Feel free to move about the cabin.
2: Yeah, yeah, get up, meet, meet. you know, have a good time, be yourself.
1: So the last time I was there, I probably saw 10 people I knew. And how many seats do you have?
2: <laughs> we have, in the main dining room altogether, we have 50 seats.
1: Okay, so <clears throat> if that gives you all an impression, um, go meet your friends there, whether you plan to or not. Yeah. So, how important do you think the name Fat Calf Brasserie is? And how many times have you seen people write Brazier instead?
2: <laughs> I get it all the time, um, but I don't judge. I mean, I, I've probably mispronounced you know many things in my lifetime. It's something that's unfamiliar the most, so it takes some some time to get used to. You know, we laugh and we chuckle, um, but the name kind of just came out of. Um, from fat calf boucherie it evolved into um, the brasserie and it's something we really wanted to do in the beginning but at the time it wasn't the time or the place um, we were down a different path and for what we were doing in the beginning with the boucherie it fit what we were trying to started out doing <clears throat> as we moved over into 3030 Cresswell you're like how are we going to change you know people's mentality of what we are we're not a gastro pub no more we're not attached to a brewery um, where we're stretching our arms and having our own identity and how do we do that so without lose confusing everybody completely and changing the name 100% and um, we we had taken a trip actually a year ago last week to paris and when we were in paris there's brasseries everywhere. There's little neighborhood restaurants, and I remember having a conversation with Amanda, my wife, as we were walking through, and she said brasseries kind of like boucheries, and she saw we saw boucheries everywhere too, and she said it's funny uh, the brasseries are always nestled in like the little neighborhoods throughout Paris, and at that moment in time, um, I knew, but she didn't know that I'd already been looking at at Cresswell. Um, that was kind of a secret I was keeping to myself because I didn't want to stress her out any more than I, <laughs> I already do. Um, and so in my head, I'm like, "This is, you know, brosserie, the fat calf brosserie. That would be, that'd be a great transition." And that's kind of how that name um, came about without losing our identity altogether, and something that was familiar to everyone when they saw the name, uh, but also gave it just a little bit more class than what we had before as a food truck.
1: And what did you learn from opening that <clears throat> brick-and-mortar restaurant in Highland, which had been so many other restaurants and things other than restaurants also mm-hmm. in the past?
2: You know, you got to get creative. Um, you know, everyone knows that that location has horrible parking. It's you know, We hear it every day. It's They, they always state the obvious, um, the parking in and, and other restaurants and their shortcomings in that in that building. and. It's a very hard location. Um, I think anybody who's ever taken a chance to try to build something in that takes a lot of tenacity. It's a lot of, um, it's easy to say, it's easy to say that place isn't successful because of this or that or, and blame it on a bun- bunch of different things. Um, but you gotta get creative, you gotta look at it. And it takes a lot until you put yourself in that, those shoes and you take that jump and you make that sacrifice it's easy to say this is a reason it didn't work or this is a reason but so when we took over that we had pulled up all the reviews from every restaurant that had been there previously from Columbia to all the other entities and we looked at the good and the bad and we looked at what people come were upset about prior what they were most excited about and from there that kind of gave us a platform of Okay, well, we can correct, we know we need to correct these few things before we open. Okay, the parking, we, there's nothing we can do about the parking. We can't magically add more parking spaces to it. So, how do we get creative with that? Um, we are a neighborhood restaurant. Um, and then, when you go to a big city like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, a lot of those restaurants don't have parking. People walk there. And that's part of going out and dining. You go out and you meet some friends, you walk, you have a drink somewhere, you have dinner, and then you walk back. So we already had a list of things we needed to correct and um, work on, and are we 100% yet? No, we're not, but we've we've worked really hard at correcting and getting creative with now. The difference we have now is we have Uber and Lyft. Uh, Bicycles, we encourage people to do bicycles, even though the weather hasn't really been where we need it to be for people to ride bicycles but in the spring and summertime i think we'll see a lot of that and and walk uh, we have parking adjacent to the restaurant there's a couple of parking areas around the area where you, it's literally a 30-second walk
3: well there's also it's a it's a neighborhood like yeah, you it's can, a neighborhood anywhere else in the country you go to eat there may be two spots and then you park somewhere down right. the street and you walk <clears throat> a couple blocks you get to the restaurant i don't it's Every time I've gone to a restaurant, I park. I mean, I'll park with three people in the car. And they're like, "Oh my god, this is so far away!" and it's it's three hundred yards. Yes, I've, t- like,
2: I've I've monitored myself on my phone and walked from different areas. The longest walk has been thirty seconds. Yeah, it's like, it's not that it's not that far.
3: And and like once you you know, it, they complain in the car. Once they get out of the car, you get to the restaurant. I never nobody's ever complaining when you get right. back from the restaurant to the car. It's not. It's just that initial people here are very used to driving up to a place and walking as few steps as they can to get into the place right. and that's a that's you know having a lot of parking is something around here we have lots of space so right. there is lots of place that and you know quite frankly the mpc is going to say like if you have you know this many people inside you have to have this many parking spaces exactly. like that was a big huge yep. thing at, at red river right and, and so it's just... I don't know. I like going to your restaurant and parking down the street and walking. Like, it's not far.
2: <laughs> yeah, now, I, when the weather's bad, I can see it, but it is what... I mean, we can only do so much. Sure, you know. but I mean... If you it's know, good, they'll come. If not, they don't... You know, I, I they think...
3: Come. I mean, I've been there, you know, hot weather, cool weather, cold weather, rain, all, all of those things, and I've never... It's never been a deterrent right. to, to go in and having a good time. To eat.
2: Well, you know, and before when it was other restaurants, when Chase had it a stir, that's one of the ways we, me and Amanda, fell in love with it, was we lived on Atkins Street. It wasn't but a five minute walk. So, you know, before we had kids and we weren't married yet, we'd go out a lot and we could walk from our house on Atkins Street. Walk, go have drinks, go have food, and we'd have a, a nice stroll back. And that was date night. There was something nice about that. And when we, started out we're like this is remember those days when we used to walk here that's what we want to create and I think we've done a pretty good job with creating that
1: yeah definitely what do you wish that you knew before you started the business (laughs) everything
2: (laughs) every I mean I don't think anybody can fully prepare you for opening a restaurant I think that um, a lot of people think they can do it a lot of people you know there we get so many suggestions and so many critiques and you should do this you should do that um but i don't think anything really fully prepares you for any business let alone the restaurant business it's very uh finicky um a beast you know opinion oriented very opinion oriented very yelp and very very review overrated um and everyone has their opinions on how what you should do. And, you know, some days you gotta, you gotta stand by your vision of what you started out to do because if you start taking everybody's uh, suggestions of what you should be, you lose your vision, your identity of what you started out to be. In the restaurant business, I think it's kind of a, you learn every day. I mean, there's never a day in the restaurant where it's perfect, that everything goes 100% the way you want. Things break, stuff happens, uh, shipments are late, things don't show up, staff calls out. Uh, people don't show up Uh, it rains, power goes out you gotta shut the restaurant down I mean, you learn to be patient you learn to be resilient and you learn to laugh at most moments because the shift will always end you know, tomorrow's a new day Uh, nothing fully prepares you for the restaurant business, I don't think at least, I've never seen it
1: Clearly, it has (laughs) tons of challenges in all different directions and dimensions, but what was the single most fun moment of opening?
2: You know, the the single most fun moment, I think, was the conceptual part of it. Um, There for a while, you know, I knew we had to do something with Fat Calf. I knew, you know, in a business, you can't always look day to day, be in the, the, the moment. You have to kind of project and where you see yourself and... Uh, I'm always looking, even with the brasserie now, I'm always looking, where will we be in three years? Do we stay there? Do we move? So when I was thinking about what to do with the boucherie and, you know, what direction we needed to go, uh, I had already looked at a bunch of spots. I was trying to find a good location, and everything kept bringing us back to Criswell. Oh, I say we, me at the moment, because I didn't want to stress my wife out. And so I had already, um, you know, met with Matthew Lynn a couple of times, and and talked to him and looked at the had so much that he had handed me the keys before I signed the lease and said, you know what, just I know you're very interested, you I know you're very methodical and you're thinking about every angle. I, I appreciate that you're not just jumping into this. He said, Here's the keys, come in anytime you want. And so there for the first probably four weeks, before I told my wife what I was up to, I'd go to work, I'd get off at the boucherie, come home, help her put Jackson to bed, get him ready. And I'll make up some excuse, hey, I have to, I think I left something on at the truck, or ah, I think I need to order something, I need to go double-check my produce. And I'd sneak out of the house, and I'd come home probably an hour and a half later, and I'd go up to the, the restaurant and sit in that restaurant. And I have my notebooks and my laptop, and I'm sitting there like, can we make this work? You know, crunching numbers and, and projecting where we would be, and, you know, after a while she kind of said what are you up to late at night and so that was what I, I laid out the plan I said this is what we're going to do and this is where I see us going with it um, and she thought I was crazy she said no absolutely not we're not doing that and um, I'm I'm hard-headed and very uh, headstrong so I went ahead and moved forward with it anyway and now she's very she sees where we're at and she's very she's a huge I mean, she's 50-50 partner. She's very hands-on. She's
3: also, like, the fate, like, when you come in, she's, if I've been there four times, three of those, mm-hmm. the first person I see is her. Yep. And she's, I mean, she's, like, the front of the house, you know, like, <laughs> you can see you back in the window. Yeah. But, like, when you walk in, she's the interface. She t- If something's wrong, she mm-hmm. fixes it. Like, she, I mean, she's a huge part of yep. that. Like, <clears throat> I think, like, in your explanation of like how you be you're resilient and you just like it all seems like it's her now i know yeah. it's like a team but <laughs> and my but, mother-in-law her mother is a, is the yeah I mean, it's a family we'll rest like yeah. that's so my thing kind of like with a lot of restaurants is you know with key or any place like that it's those those places are family restaurants that yeah. those and this is a really bad analogy that I always make but it's like if, if Amanda walks outside and there's trash on the ground she's going to pick it up right you know John he, he might not step over it but, but but she's going she's absolutely going to And and I'm saying if it's your baby you're going to take care of mm-hmm. it you're going to Oh, man, this door sticks. I don't know why it is. I'm going to think about it as opposed to, man, at work, that door sticks. I hate that door. Right. Like, it's there's just well, something even my, about My
2: five-year-old it. gets the concept, you know. We, yeah. We're supposed to have a, a rule, in effect, on the patio, no smoking. Yeah. And, you know, I do. I, I'm not smoking anymore right now, but I do smoke. And I've made a, a rule of no smoking on the patio on the terrace at the restaurant. Only because I hate picking up cigarette butts. Yep. And I don't mind if you smoke, but I have the common decency to throw it in the garbage or put it away. Don't flick it all over the place. So I said, no smoking. So my five-year-old gets the concept, and he'll come up, come up there after school. they in happy hour, and there'll be someone out there smoking cigarettes. And he'll march himself into the kitchen and say, Daddy, I need to talk to you. <laughs> and I say, what? and he's serious. He's very serious. He's, come with me. He said, "Why I come here? I see two girls and one boy smoking cigarettes." <laughs> he said, "You have rules, and you let them break the rules." <laughs> I said, "Well, you know what are you going to do? You can't go out there and get on to them." Um, but he. I said, think Jackson yeah, could. Yeah, Hi. You know,
1: we don't allow smoking yeah. <laughs> here.
2: <laughs> and he'll pick stuff up. He'll go outside and pick and pick trash up. But you know, he is taking pride in what you do.
3: Yeah, um, I think that's what it, it's like. It's your thing. Right. It's like you 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 have a different set of goals when it's your personal thing right. it's not just a nine-to-five job
2: exactly and I think that kind of rolls into you know my biggest thing is getting people to believe in your vision you know my hardest thing is not getting frustrated with people because they don't see the big picture you know picking up that piece of garbage or cleaning those windows or you know the chives have to be cut perfectly and the drinks have to be just cold or it's some minor details and You know, people aren't always going to believe in your vision, so how do you get the horse to drink the water, per se? That's that's a hard, that's a million dollar question.
1: I don't know how you and Amanda do it. How do you manage (laughs) working with your spouse, and your spouse has a full-time job elsewhere?
2: I know, and a full-time mother, Um, and five and a half months pregnant, I think. I'm not necessarily one that has to manage working with her. I think she manages working with me because I'm hard to deal with at times. She keeps me balanced. You know, I know my, my place. I stay in the kitchen um, with my guys and, and train them. But she is, you know, she does the marketing. My mother-in-law does the books and all the hiring and keeps us on track. And she's, if my wife's out there, you'll see Bernie there. She's um, new to the restaurant business. Hey, Ma. Um, but she's really, you know, she retired and came to help out a little bit with the food truck. Here we are three years later, and she's full-fledged. You'll see her in a suit. She's out there. She's learning about wine. She's learning about the food. She's learning uh, all the, you know, corporate side where she's from is different than managing a small business because you're working with everyone's different personalities. You know, Tom might be managed different than, than this person and that person. Everyone has different ways you, you need to get through to them. So I think it's been a big learning curve for all of us, and in working together, on that and me being open to uh suggestions you know i'm very one-tracked i need to be done this way this is my vision and then you got they come in and say no you need to try it this way or you know she'll sit down with me with the books and we go over p and l's and she's like this is where we're at this is what we need to do you need to cut this in order to get here and so that's good to have you know it's a fan some days it's you know you sit in the office and you know you're surprised we're even still a family some days because we it gets pretty intense um but it's the mutual respect we have for each other that you know, we walk away from it and say, you know what, you're right, we gotta, we gotta fix this.
1: What would be the most surprising thing that you've discovered about being a chef and restaurateur?
2: The uncertainty of it. Um, like we were talking about in the beginning, it's not always just about the food, um, getting to hide behind the stove. It's just being able to do everything. Um, whether you're the coach, you're the counselor, you're the maintenance man, you're the cook, you're dishwasher, you're prep, you're uh, everything. Um, it's, it's a lot, lot to juggle in a day, and being, being the owner and the chef who's there cooking every day, who's working, not on the business per se, but working in the business, and it's kind of backwards because you should be working on the business versus in the business. Um, and so that, that also has – it's different managing people when you're there with them on a day-to-day basis than when you're outside view and you get to come in and say, this is how this is how the company needs it, this and that. And you don't know the employee per se. You don't know what they're going through. You, but yet when you're there cooking with them, you're with them every day. You, you know what they're going through. Um, so there's a kinship there. So that, that, that sometimes that makes the boundaries hard. Um, But I think that's what sets us apart because we are mom and pop. We understand that people go through things. Um, And so, you know, we we work through it together.
1: It's clear that you love your career, but you may not have loved every job you've had. (laughs) Nobody has had a string of fantastic jobs. So what's the worst job you've ever had? You know...
2: I think the, when I first, when I was 16, I worked at Quiznos on airline drive, and I was a, a dishwasher there after school. I wouldn't necessarily say I had a, a bad job or a worse job. I think they all kind of play into who you become later on down the road, whether it's appreciation for the dishwasher, because you know how hard that is. Um, you know what it's like to live off that, that kind of money. Or whether you're, I did skirting with my family for a long time on mobile home parks and working in that heat and underpinning mobile homes, um, roofing. I think that was a pretty horrible job. I did some roofing for a quick summer one time when I was 16, and that was hard work. So when you, when you go through your day, you look, yeah, I'm very blessed. I'm inside. I do what I love. I'm not in the elements. Um, but you got to take a little bit of everything that you've done along the way Because that eventually molds you into who you're going to become as a business owner or a manager. It kind of gives you insight on how to know what others are going through, I think.
1: At least you didn't get sunburns as a ticket writer at Louisiana (laughs) Tech. I am Nordic and pasty, and it was not good. So switching gears, how do you feel about cookbooks? Is there one that you love?
2: You know, I've got hundreds of cookbooks, and I don't think I've ever read... Any of them from page one to the end. Um, I look at them more as um, encyclopedias. Um, I had cookbooks before the internet was real accessible on my phone. Before there were cell phones and iPads, you know, you had to have the computer at home back then. I had a laptop in school, but you didn't always, you weren't always connected to the the web. And I have cookbooks I've been carrying around for 20 years, and my wife tells me. You know, you haven't opened these in years. I get rid of these. I'm like, no, those are, those are sacred. Can't get rid of those. Um, but there's always the references. They're guides. they um, especially when you have young cooks in the kitchen. I have a ton of cookbooks at work, and they're interested in something or they need to know something. Say, so, hey, I got a couple of cookbooks. Go, go read. You know, in this day and age, everything's at your fingertips. So there's really no reason not to know or be informed because you can easily grab your phone and figure it out Um, but for me it's something about picking it up having coffee flipping through it Um, I like biographies I like reading different biographies on chefs to kind of it makes you realize what you're going through on a day-to-day basis it's the norm I just why is this happening to me today it's everybody does it and everyone's gone through it Um, and I like the collection I like to collect them
1: I think that we are exactly the same and yet totally (laughs) different on cookbooks because I have read many cookbooks like they are novels. I basically don't read novels. (laughs) I read a lot of nonfiction, and I love biographies of chefs and food people, even if they might not be a chef per se. And I feel that they are references and inspiration tools. And as a recovering librarian... I would say that not everything is on the Internet, Mm. especially some things that are obscure. And when you're looking for something that's unique to a particular area, a particular culture has an ingredient that you don't find in today's supermarkets, but it's so-and-so's heirloom variety of whatever, and you don't know how that product is different than the mass-market, everyday thing that you might get at a big grocery those old resources can really show their value. Yeah. And you might just want to read a recipe if your battery's dead or the power's out. (laughs) (laughs) So what food in Shreveport do you enjoy?
2: You know, my two favorite places in town to eat are Key, Mexico, or La Michicana. Um, My background, I am Hispanic. My grandmother, you know, she was Hispanic and... Growing up with her, making her tortillas and stuff as a kid, um, it's like something that nostalgic about the food. Um, and everybody loves tacos, right? Um, and when you're cooking all day, you know, you don't always want something. Everyone thinks chefs eat fancy food all day. We, we eat prime rib, we eat foie gras, we eat caviar, we eat the best of the best half the time and standing over a trash can or sitting outside on the steps, scarfing food before service starts. And when you're at home, you cook, but it's not these glamorous meals that people portray that they think the chefs are at home cooking. My wife does probably 75% of the cooking at home. Um, and when I'm off on Sundays or Mondays, I do the cooking. Um, but those are two places I go, Key, Mexico, or La Michicana.
1: So are those the biggest misconceptions that people have about chefs, their eating habits?
2: Yeah, I think they think we eat very glamorous. Um, now, when we go out to eat. We might indulge a little much, you know. I'm known to order half the menu when I go out. The chances that you do you're get to exploring. go out to eat, yeah, and you don't get to go out that much. It's you're always cooking for others. So it's when you sit down, you know, at um, someone's restaurant, and you're really excited about trying their food. It's you know, you start ordering a bunch of things to try. Um, but on a day to day basis, it's very. Our diets are very limited, and it's fueled off coffee, energy, and eating whatever you can to sustain yourself to get through the shift.
1: Have you ever had somebody say something to you that just revealed something they thought about you in particular and you just thought they were bonkers that they had come oh, I to get that t- <laughs> idea?
2: I, get, I laugh at this because it's been told to me before, too, by other people who own businesses. But now, you know, you own a restaurant or you own a business. For some reason, people automatically think you're rich. They think you have all this this money, and I'm hoarding all this gold, and, you know, it must be nice to be rich. You own your own restaurant. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and I wish that was the case, and, you know, I've always heard that over the years, um, and now that I'm there, I'm like, wow, it's like, no one really understands. We're not, you know, we work on a very small profit margin, and, um, yeah, we're not rich at all. <laughs>
1: People do have a lot of strange ideas about that, but the restaurant business is notoriously hard and places fail all the Mm -hmm. time and places that you love go out of business in the blink of an eye. And I've seen posts on Facebook, we got to work and there were locks on the door. And now what are we doing? I've been in that same
2: spot, you know. I've had that happen to me before it goes back to the economy you know trends and things change and you know i think sometimes bigger isn't always better you know you want smaller restaurants little, lower overhead um, especially in shreveport as the economy's changed over the years you know people can't always these big restaurants people can't afford you can't afford to fill those restaurants up at capacity every day and people can't afford to eat at that price point there's only a very small amount of demographics that can go out and afford that every day. Um, so when you build a restaurant so big, it's going to be very hard to sustain that. Putting rent, electricity, utilities, overhead, staffing, um, it, all, it all plays a, a role in it. So I think sometimes a smaller scale, more concise, focused in on doing something, one few things right, versus spreading yourself over a 40-page menu. Um, and doing it all halfway um, is semi the key to success.
1: And raising canes is very successful, mm-hmm. and their menu is tiny. Yeah,
2: in and out burger. I mean, they do one or two things. That's it.
1: So we don't have in and out. What kind of restaurant would you like to see in Shreveport?
2: You know, I'd like to see a little more change. Um, Ethiopian food would be nice. Um, some type of Brazilian steakhouse, small scale. Some bring some different ethnics. Uh, we have a lot of Mexican food. I love Mexican food. We have a lot of burgers and we have a lot of deep fried food. But we need to be open to, you know, other restaurants coming in and supporting them. You know, we had El Mono.
1: I loved it. Wonderful, I'm sad.
2: wonderful restaurant. Um I'm not necessarily sure why, you know, I support it. I went there and ate at least two or three times a month. I loved it. Um, but people Another get out,
1: rotisserie yeah, place.
2: Yeah, and I always got the chicken that had that garlic sauce that was amazing on the rice, and, you know, we loved it. They had the little, um, the corn, the fried corn on the table as a, the app to munch on. But something unique, something you don't see, and it also takes people getting out and supporting it and not judging it as soon as they open their doors.
1: Well, I think it was really interesting for people to get in there and start to realize that Peruvian food had a lot of things in common with Louisiana food in general. Right. And <clears throat> the restaurant that was in Bossier, Sabores. I went there too. That mm-hmm. restaurant had tons of food that yeah. you could have just said it was Louisiana food other than fried yuca. Yeah. Because they... They had, essentially, Natchitoches meat pies, Mm -hmm. lots of rice and beans.
2: A lot of of similarities.
1: Yeah. There is a major Latin influence and Caribbean influence in Louisiana food that a lot of people don't even realize. So, what is the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in a kitchen?
2: That's a tough one. Um, I think the craziest thing I've ever seen, and this wasn't even... the kitchen, it was, when I first started out, um, it was probably the second week of culinary school. And the kitchen's chaotic, but this was, I didn't really see it, but I saw the aftermath. And so when you're in culinary school, the first week or so, it's you're doing knife work, chopping vegetables, doing stocks, and deep frying food. They're teaching you how to deep fry. But in culinary school, in the bigger restaurants, you don't have the deep fryer. In school, you had a, a pot on the stove, a thermometer. And you would tempt oil. And everyone was on edge at culinary school. And, you know, you're new, you're fresh, you you know, the chefs are all European and they're yelling and screaming at you to get you prepared for when you leave out to the real world. Well, you're supposed to have everything, your Sharpie, your notebooks, you know, your knives, your thermometers, all that. So our sister class that shared the class with us, she didn't bring her thermometer that day. And she had already gotten in trouble for a few things, I forget what. And she was doing deep frying. Well, she asked the chef if she could borrow his thermometer. And naturally, he gave her a hard time about it. You should come better prepared, blah, blah, blah. And so he's like, you better not lose this. You better not break it. So for whatever reason, I'm not, I, I didn't see it. I saw them carry her out. She went to tempt oil and dropped the thermometer into this pot of oil. So her natural reaction, cause she freaked out, was she went in after it.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: And it took her. When I tell you, it took the skin off from the bottom of her elbow, like a Don's dish glove. The first layer just took off. I didn't see it happen, but I saw them. I saw her bleeding, and then Mealy getting her out of out of class and getting her to the emergency room. Uh, never saw her after that. She never came back to school. But that was probably the worst thing I've ever seen. I was like, wow, that's it can get dangerous. Um, but as far as, you know, you know your normal bickering back and forth. Um, there's a lot of testosterone in the kitchen. People, tensions, egos get in the way um, of everything. But other than that, it's been a pretty pretty easy ride. Not easy, but nothing too crazy, nothing too chaotic.
1: So there is a reputation for being a testosterone-fueled, aggressive mm-hmm. place, the kitchen I in think general. Time, I
2: think times are, are getting better now. Um, Fifteen years ago, when I started out, that's that was the norm. It was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of uh, throwing pots and pans. Um, and you don't realize that when you start out in that, that environment, you know, you think you're conditioned to think it's very militant. It's very it's based on the French Brigade. So you you think it's the norm. You know, even in culinary school, it was that way. It was the chefs were very tough. It was very like drill sergeants. And so as you you move up in the ranks, you don't realize it until you take yourself out of that environment. And it took me years to realize that. I've chilled out a lot now. I mean, I still have my my tweaks, don't get me wrong, but as far as the screaming, yelling, throwing things, we don't do that anymore, um, partially because I have a five-year-old, so I think that's taught me a lot of patience. But when I first moved back from San Francisco and worked at uh, Wine Country, uh, Jason will tell you this I was probably in his office uh, every other week <laughs> you know you can't do this chef you can't talk to people that way you can't you can't throw things at people and I didn't understand that because I was I had, I'm like well how else do you get you know get through to people like how do you get them to do I mean that's what I was I had get hit with ladles and it was yes yeah, chef no chef and I didn't realize it until I left here after working for um, wine country and Brady for about four years I went back to San Diego, and the restaurant tour I worked for out there was a great guy, but he was still that old mentality, and so I went, when I stepped away, and I went back to that environment, I was like, wow, this is, this is insane that this guy is doing this. Like, now I understand. So, it opened up a whole new um, understanding of the old ways weren't working, and so you got to kind of change your mentality. Uh, I'm still stern. I still, you know, if I had to drop the hammer, I dropped the hammer. But there's more of a, a mentorship, and you got to learn to communicate a little bit better these, these days. But it is very testosterone-driven. It's very, um, a lot of egos, a lot of people trying to prove each other to the other guy, and they're always trying to impress the chef instead of, you know, I always tell my guys, it's not about what you can do. Look what I did. Look what I did. You're better off. You say, look what we We accomplished. Because then you're standing as a unit, you're a crew. Um, if I happen to get a day off and I step away and they have a really good service, you'll never hear my guy say, I rocked that, I rocked it. They'll say, we, we did really good, Chef. Or if they went down and they didn't do a good job, they'll say, Chef, we, we messed up. We, we got behind on some tickets, we had to send back, we did the best we could. But it's always we, it's not I. And that takes that took a lot of years on my part to, to change my mentality to get there
1: I imagine you've also seen some issues over time with substance abuse in the hospitality industry oh
2: yeah um, you know I've been on both sides of the fence you know in San Francisco it was you know, I always go back to that because it was different you know I think it 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 molded me and then also was a different way of life that doesn't really happen anywhere. When you're working at high-end restaurants, substance abuse is, you know, it's not really talked about in the restaurant business that much, but it's rampant everywhere. Um, you know, back then it was cocaine. Cocaine was rampant, you know. Uh, I was on both sides. I mean, seven years of living out there that you were fueled on energy drinks and, and cocaine, It was it was the norm back then. And I'm not ashamed of that. But where we're at now times have changed but there would be times you go to work and sous chefs would have plates underneath the stations and you're working 15 16 hour days it's go faster go faster go faster go faster um and then you're getting off of that adrenaline rush and you're getting out at midnight and now you're you're hopped up on energy now you go to the bar and you're 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 drinking you're drinking to go to bed and then you get up and do it all over again Um, I don't think it's as bad these days as it used to be. At least I don't see it in my kitchen. Um, we have a pretty, I'm pretty strict about, you know, the binge drinking drug, drug use. If it's in there, if I see it, if I suspect it, we don't have time for it. Um, it brings you down. Bad habits bring you down. Does it exist? It exists everywhere. Um, whether it's the front of the house, back of the house, management. Um, the drinking is a bigger thing now. A lot of heavy drinking. Um, And I tell my guys, you know, it's good to have a good time, but if you're going every single night, five days a week, till three, four o'clock in the morning, and then dragging in the work and trying to produce, you're not going to be able to perform 100%. Um, And then there's the pressure that's on you constantly as a chef. You know, it's easy. People don't understand. They think being a chef is very glamorous, and it's... Just uh, you wear a white chef coat, and the chef the chef coat makes you a chef, and you live this big fancy lifestyle.
1: And don't forget the toque, which the you toque. don't ever no. And wear half the, the time toque. you'll see me on the
2: t t-shirt. <laughs> you know, it's not the, the coat; it's the it's what's the mentorship. It's in your heart. It's the passion. It's knowing where you've been, and you can relate to those guys because you've been there. You've done it ten times full at a higher rate, at a faster rate, and more higher end restaurants. So you know what the damage can be done. Um, that's partially why I left San Francisco to get. It. I mean, I was I was burnt out. I had to come back. I, it was it was rough. Um, I enjoyed it every bit, but I had to get out of that environment. And um, the pressure that people put on chefs and cooks in restaurant, the judgments, the constant. If you don't have everything perfect, they're quick to judge you. Uh, they don't they don't know the damage it does when someone walks by a table and says, "Hey, how was everything?" and they say. Oh, everything's great. Five seconds later, they go on Yelp and they get home and they blast your restaurant. They, they tear everything apart. You know what that does is you've worked so hard, and so long that maybe you didn't get the steak right. Maybe something wasn't seasoned perfectly. We can fix it. You know that's what we do with hospitality. Um, give us a chance first. If you don't give us a chance, we can't fix it. But then you damage that, and then it hurts everybody. Everyone in that restaurant feels like they've let people down or they're not good enough or what are they doing something wrong? And the restaurant business is very hard. Um, so I, I say hats off to anyone that can do it better, more consistent than anybody who's currently in that situation because it's hard. Um, it's a lot of pressure, a lot of young cooks, a lot of everyone's on, on edge constantly. So you know, suicide rate in the restaurant business is pretty high. For a lot of these high-end chefs that you think are they're Michelin and they're up there and they're older, I mean, you see it every day. Someone's Anthony Anthony Bourdain. I mean, people who you think have the best life, they don't know. What the, it's the stress, it's the constant pressure you put on yourself to be the best. Um, and it's just that little bit of something that someone can, a bad Yelp review, a bad Google review, um, that tears you apart. And then there's a downward spiral, you know. Then you start drinking, you start trying to cope. Um, and I don't think people talk about it because they don't want to talk about it. They they rather not think it exists, but it exists. I mean, it's it's everywhere.
1: And for those people who are not having any substance abuse <clears throat> problems or any issues with depression and burnout, there are also major health issues. Yep. And we've recently lost George Beard due to stroke. And what would you say about those issues?
2: You know, it happens to all of us. Um, You know, that was an unfortunate, talented chef. And that shows you an example, the dedication, the drive, the sacrifice. Um, That was a chef. That was a, a chef, a true chef that sacrificed everything to work every day. Do we know better? Yeah, we know better. Um, it, it takes a lot. It goes back to the eating habits, getting sleep, taking care of yourself. Even now, you know, my wife has me, my doctor and my wife have me on a diet because um, my cholesterol, after that happened, I have another good friend of mine who's also a chef who had a stroke last week. Um, and he's currently still in ICU. Um, and it makes you realize these guys are 10 years older than I am. But I've lived, we've lived a hard life. We've we, we lived that rock star lifestyle of being a chef. You work hard, you party hard. Eventually, it takes a toll on you. And so it's, it takes a toll if, you're, if you don't take care of yourself. So you gotta eat right, you gotta get your sleep, you gotta get some exercise. Um, and, you know, you come first. You know, the restaurant should come second, your customer third, your employees should come first, you come first, take care of yourself, and then you can take care of the others. Um, yeah, it happens every day and it's unfortunate because it shouldn't happen.
1: So what is it that you don't think you are very good at?
2: Probably delegating. Um, letting, letting go of my control. Everyone I run to have control issues. I need things this way, that way. Um, so much that I'm learning to step back a little bit you know i can't control everything i gotta you know and let the staff kind of run with it um sometimes that can be good sometimes that can be a whirlwind when you have 18 different employees trying to tell you 18 different things of what you should do um so it can kind of be pandora's box a little bit but for the most part instilling them giving them that ownership giving them a little bit of entitlement um letting them make specials letting them have a say it 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 gives them something where they feel good about themselves. So you build confidence in them. Um, and my, my biggest thing is the delegation. I can write prep lists. I can do all that. But I'm the one that wants to come in and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and and control as much as I possibly can control. Um, because now I do own the business, and we do have the restaurant. And at the end of the day, I'm responsible for all those guys and, and my family and their families. And... So you want things right, so letting, letting go and learning to take a day off. Um, my wife will tell you even on Sundays and Mondays I'm still at the restaurant, I'm still in the office. I'm, I'm trying to turn it off. Um, so when I'm at home, I'm, I'm, I'm present, I'm with them. Uh, and that's the hardest, turning it off and knowing when to turn it off and when to turn it on. I think it's, it's a big thing.
1: So no one has total control over everything. You may mm. have a good feeling about a dish or a concept. What's something you were very confident in that just didn't work out? Maybe an idea or a dish.
3: Oh,
2: man. That's a tough one. it has been a lot of dishes, a lot of things, a lot of uh, things that have worked, a lot of things that haven't worked. You know i think when you write a menu the hardest thing is trying to overanalyze it because so you're trying to when you write a menu you want to do what you like you know you want to do what drives you the food you like to do but you're also selling it to a huge a bigger demographic than yourself so people have to be able to relate to it when i first put bone marrow on the menu at the food truck it sold really good in the beginning and then as you know we started getting busier and busier I don't feel like we got the same foodie crowd coming in so the menu switch changed so some of the stuff like beef tartare you know I took off you know we had someone order beef tartare and I sent it out and they sent it back and they were very upset because it was raw
1: ah so a little education it, was necessary they
2: wanted it <laughs> well done and I said get a hamburger we just I can't give you beef tartare at that point I was already on edge. I'm like, this is not... uh, We're we're going down the rabbit hole right now. And I had tuna crudo on the menu, which is raw. Nice ahi tuna. We butchered it every day. Served over crushed avocado. And that would get sent back because it was raw. And people wanted it cooked. It's like, you know...
1: People, crudo means raw.
2: Yeah, and it's it's education. You know, it's demographics. It's it's being, you know, being familiar with certain things. Sometimes people don't eat that way. um, And they have to be open to it, so... We had a lot of ups and downs with some of the food. And over the years, I've done things that maybe have been too wild. Or Some people have appreciated it. Sometimes people are like, that's you know, sweetbreads or another thing. People don't like organ meat, beef heart. Um, and I've done that at underground dinners. So underground dinners with Second Act Supper Club is a way for us to do weird things like that. Beef heart, uh, fresh uni, different things that you don't see every day. And it takes away all your the build-up before you get there, because you don't know what you're eating. So you don't really have a decision at that moment in time when that dish hits there if you're going to eat it or not. You're hungry, and you're waiting for the next dish, and the first dish was good, second dish was good, but bam, here comes this third dish. It's marinated beef heart. And you don't know how you feel about it. But the whole idea is for you to eat it. Whether you like it or not, that's okay. You don't have to like it. But try it, because you never know what you're going to like. You eat it, and you're like, wow, that actually was pretty good but they never would have tried it unless it was just put in front of them and given a choice to eat it. Um, So there's always different things that happen.
1: So what's the most overrated food trend or dish?
2: (laughs) Truffle fries. (laughs) I get it all the time. Everyone always wants truffle parmesan cheese fries every time they come to the restaurant. And they're good, don't get me wrong, but everybody wants it. My wife, Amanda, I know you're listening. She started that. Um, trend. But I think just the stuff you see everyone doing it. I mean everyone does it you know, you see that everywhere in every menu.
1: So you don't want to cook that for ten years. No. But <laughs> if you had to cook one dish for ten years, what would that be? No, I'm doing that now.
2: Uh, rotisserie chicken. That was my dream, get the big rotisserie and we use Mahaffey Farms chickens. And we use a little herb de Provence and we trust them and we slow roast them. And we take those drippings and we cook our potatoes in it. That, for me, is a perfect meal. Um, Roasted chicken, potatoes confit, give me a nice little piece of triple cream cheese in a baguette, and I'm, I'm happy.
1: And spoken like a true Frenchman. Yeah,
2: one. that's what I like. Uh, you know, I learned that when I lived out in California, I worked at a rotisserie shop. And that's where I started liking the rotisserie. I worked the rotisserie every day for a French chef. And every night, he'd send me home with a chicken and potatoes. I ate that probably for a good year, um, and we were based in the Ferry Building. I don't know if you've ever been to the Ferry Building, um, but in the Ferry Building in San Francisco, there's a bunch of little artisan shops. And one does chocolate, one does gelato. You have CalGirl Creamery and Acme Bread Company, so he'd send me home every night with chicken and potatoes, and I'd stop and get me some cheese and bread, and I ate. I literally ate that for almost a year straight because I was in culinary school. I lived in California. It's expensive, and ate free food from him for a good year it, it kept me alive
1: on a less glamorous note in eighth grade i had a turkey sandwich on wheat bread every single day hey
2: that's a good nostalgia.
1: <laughs> what's the question that nobody ever asks you but you should be asked right now
2: mm, that's a hard one how do you do it all i guess so how um,
1: do you do it all?
2: Not by myself, I tell you that much. Um, you know, if I didn't have my wife and my mother-in-law, uh, it would be a lot harder on me. Um, and my staff behind me, it, it, takes, it takes a village and it takes everybody to make your dream come true. Um, and for me, at this moment, where we're at now, we're living in that moment. And I tell the guys all the time, you know, oh, you know, Fat Calf is doing good, Chef. You're doing good. You did this. And oh, we were doing this. You know, I, I could have this whole place, and I, do, I can cook all this food, yes. But I wouldn't have a restaurant if it wasn't for my mother-in-law, my wife, you know, my son being very resilient, knowing that I work a lot, and our staff behind us, you know, you, you do it with the help of everybody. Um, I think that's it. I think everyone thinks it's easy, but without a, a backbone and a good structure behind you, it would be very difficult.
1: So in the spirit of Inside the actor Studio, a series of questions. What is your favorite word? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know if I can say that on air.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll skip that. What sound or noise do you love?
2: The sizzle of a pan, the knife hitting the steel, um, especially when you get to sharpen your knives, just the that, that sound it makes over the stone.
1: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
2: I've always wanted to be—I uh, don't even know the word. When you travel and you study different cultures, archaeologist—is that what that is? Uh,
1: it depends. Kind that of, could be an yeah, ethnologist. Ancient, yeah,
2: ancient ancient civilizations, um, and get to travel. I like meeting different people. I like being in different environments. Um, I don't know what, what the word for that is, but I don't know. Travel and meet people and be a part of different cultures and and learn learn from them. It's like anthropology,
3: right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anthropology, ethnology, ancient, that could be (laughs) the archaeology. So what would you like to hear diners say about your food? I
2: don't know. Um, We get a lot of compliments. We get some negative compliments sometimes (laughs) Um, that that it's made from our heart. That they can tell that there's passion in it.
1: Now I will give you a final question from Josh Clayton. Thanks to Josh for inviting <laughs> me. If you could send a text message to everyone in Shreveport, what would it say?
2: Wow. <clears throat> thank you for the support. Um, thank you for believing in us. You know, and uh, for the good and the bad. You know, we take that. We're open to criticism and we take that too Um, but just thank you for being there
1: thank you anthony
2: thank you